Okay, if we can have everybody take their seats, please. Love to hear the fellowship. We're going to have Louis Ferris lead us in a word of prayer. Louis is a 2017 graduate of the Bible Institute and has been involved in uh, prison ministry work. And uh, COVID kind of impacted that. And so he's gotten creative on some other ways of uh, uh, ministering to those that are in prison. And uh, we love Louis. We miss him and his years in school uh, with his enthusiasm. And, uh, but he's a good man that loves the Lord and is using his skills uh, for that. And then after the prayer, we're going to have Corey Waddell lead us in a verse of a song. For those of you that don't know, uh, Corey is the, uh, I don't, you're not a new preacher anymore. You've been here a year and a half, but because of COVID, it seems like he's new, I guess. But uh, anyway, Corey is uh, a very talented uh, song leader and singer. And uh, so one of these multi-talented guys that you just love to hate because he can preach, he can lead singing. It's like, oh, stop and go, just go away. But uh, <laughs> we we appreciate Corey, and so um, Louis, lead us in prayer, and then we'll have the song after that. Oh, almost had to pray for me. Just about tripped on. <laughs> we, we had a nice trip coming up here, and so I'd like to lead you in prayer now. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we sing this song. Almighty God. We stand in awe and wonder in the universe that you've created. How often do we think about your majesty? And how often should we stop and think about your majesty? As we've gone through these lectureships, uh, my heart was so sad, Lord, last year. And I know there are many in the audience that, are, that were sad because we were not able to enjoy this fellowship. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless the fellowship that you would continue to bless the presenters with the messages that they've uh, sought out and, and uh, studied and that they would be able to bring your word into our hearts so that we would be able to understand and know you better. Lord, we continue to pray for our brother Bill Stewart and his family as I can't think of a lectureship without thinking about him and just the impact that he made on my life. and. Uh, Bear Valley, so we pray that he would that you'd continue to bless his family, and in my daily prayer, I would encourage each and every one of us to pr to pray for the Bible Institute. As I pray for the teachers, the administrators, and the eldership, as they're doing such a wonderful work here, and we're just so grateful that we have this avenue, Lord, to uh, glorify and honor your name, to understand you, and to just live our lives better so that we know that there's so much more than what this world has to offer, that we're living our lives for an eternal life, to be in heaven with you. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've given us because everything we have is all that we need 
at the time that we need it. And may we never remember, never forget just who you are, that awesome and wonderful God. Thank you again, Lord. We pray all these things in your name, if they be your will. Amen. Well, Denny, I've wondered for a year and a half what you thought of me. Now I know. <laughs> if you would stand with me as we sing a verse of Mansion Over the Hilltop. I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one, that silver line. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we will never more wander, but walk the streets that are purest gold. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we will never more wander, but walk the streets that are purest gold. Please be seated. Now you see what I mean. He can lead singing, can he? <laughs> Woo! I'm not sure I wanted to stop that. That was good. And thank you, Louie, for that prayer and just for the, the genuine heart that you, uh, you have. Just love you uh, very much. You know, one of the difficult parts of being involved in the Bible Institute is saying goodbye to families, to men that have uh, become your friends when they graduate. And that is certainly the case with our next speaker. When Mike and Natalie graduated from Bear Valley and moved on, it was very difficult to, uh, to see them leave. We had grown to love and appreciate them for all the right reasons. Hearts that love the Lord, serious students of God's word, committed to making a difference in the Lord's kingdom, and all of that has proven to be the case when uh, the Greens left us at Bear Valley. He served churches in Washington, Florida, Kentucky, and is presently in uh, Hopewell, Virginia. One of the early things, maybe the first thing you did was plant a church. Was that the very first youth minister and planted a church in Washington? That's true. He left and came back. He, I forgot about that part. But um, he is uh, doing such a good work at the, the Costin Street Church of Christ in Hopewell, Virginia. He and his wife, Natalie, have been married 21 years. Uh, they have six children. And um, when I reached out to Mike and asked him if he'd be interested in coming on the program, and he uh, agreed to, I was very excited for a number of reasons, but one, I just wanted to see him again. Uh, we've stayed in touch since uh, he graduated and uh, just really love and appreciate the Green family. Brother, come preach to us. Thanks, Danny. 
Oh, good evening, everybody. Man, it's, it's just been so good to be here to, you know, as Denny was just saying, reconnect with some old friends. It's been just already a great time of that this weekend to meet some new ones like Louie, wherever he went. I think every church needs a Louie, right? Man, uh, you know, and when I was in Washington State, I had a, a lady by the name of Funda West, and she kind of would go around with me. She was my amener, right? So, amen, Mike, amen, Walls, amen, like she was just my ameneer. And, and Louie, he's an ameneer, I'll tell you what. So, where you at, Louie? Where's the amen? There he is. There he's, I, I've embarrassed him. Come on, brother. Come on. There you go, brother. There you go. You can't be embarrassed with me talking about you. I just heard you go, oh, in the library. Come on, man. <laughs> oh, man. See, it's stuff like this that just makes, um, you know, Bear Valley such a special place. I mean, I, I just love the people here so much. I, uh, Denny, I really appreciate you and I appreciate the staff uh, putting on this lectureship and allowing the alumni to come back, you know, even years later. It's just a real shot in the arm. I needed this. You know, just to be honest with you, my elders and my wife, we had a, a death in our church on Monday night and a Tuesday morning. I really wanted to be there for the funeral, but Natalie and the elders pulled me aside and they said, you need to go. I've done 31 funerals in the past two years. So it was just, you know, on top of all that and COVID, it's just been a lot, you know, and you come here and you're around people that you love and, and it's just a real shot in the arm. So Thank you guys, and thank you to those servants behind the scenes, you know, uh, Terry Autry and Lynn Height and, and Wayne Nelson and, and the others that are working behind the scenes. I appreciate them so much. Um, just love coming back to this place. I love the memories that are associated with this place. <laughs> I, I think this one is beyond the statute of limitations where I can't get anyone in trouble, but we'll see. But um, So I, we were going up, I was going up Wadsworth. I think it was yesterday, and I looked over, and I had a good memory. And it was, now it's like yummy donuts or something like that. But back in the day, it was Winchell's Donuts. And so James Piffner, and I don't know if James is here tonight. He was here earlier. He preaches for the Parker Church. James and I were in Greek class, and Will Henstein suddenly cuts out Greek class early. And then as the students file out, Will goes, let's go to Winchell's and get some donuts. So we pile into the car. And we roll over to Winchell's to get some donuts. And as we're going into Winchell's, Mark Hanstein is coming out. All right? And there's like this stare, you know, this long stare. We're staring at one another. And finally, Will speaks up and he goes, I won't tell mom if you don't tell Denny. Oh, man. And so we kind of went in and got our donuts, and Mark went back to the office, and not another word was said about it at all, right? I, I love the memories, you know, that are associated with this place. Um, I, I love the mountains. I got to be honest with you, I cut out a little bit early today just because I needed to clear my head, and I went up to the mountains. I drove up, you know, the, you locals will know where this is. I drove up to Pine Junction, and I took a left. Because when I used to work for the Woodland Park Church, you either went down 25 to Colorado Springs or you went up to Pine Junction and you took a left. 
And that left takes you down into this meandering valley, and, and there's the South Platte River that just goes along that road, and it's just beautiful. And after you cross past this little town of pine, which just reminds me of like an old John Wayne movie or something like that, there's this meadow, and I tell you, if you got meadows in heaven, it's like that one. It's just a beautiful drive. And so I just, I took that little Nissan Sentra that I got full coverage on, and I took it around some of them corners, blasting John Denver as loud as I could on my lunch break. I mean, I just needed that, right? I, I love mountains. I've spent most of my life in Tennessee and in Washington and in Colorado, and now I live in Southeast Virginia. And our biggest mountain is the 295 overpass, and, and that's just not a mountain. And so I, I love the, the mountains when I come back to this place. But you know something else I love? I love worship. Don't you? All right, don't you just love Sunday? I, I don't know what I would do if it wasn't for Sundays. I mean, for the better part of my entire adult life, Sunday has just been a staple for me. And I'm going to be really transparent with you guys right now. I can think of two times specifically where I really didn't look forward to Sunday. One was the summer after I graduated high school. My girlfriend then, now wife of 21 years, we had just gotten back together. And she had changed, right? She got baptized over that summer. And that was one of the most transformative experiences in my Christian walk, watching her get baptized after, you know, fighting, fighting. You know, her, her family was like half the church there in St. Augustine, Florida. Why aren't you baptized yet? She was going to do it on her terms, and here she is. She gets baptized, and she changed after that. And, and she said it like this to me. She said, now listen, if it's going to be serious between us, you got to go to church. That's what she said. And by the way, you, there might be a young person in here right now that's kind of getting close to a non-Christian, or you're maybe working with a young person they may need to just say it just like that, you know. If it's going to be serious between us, you need to go to church. And so I did go to church. And if you went to St. Augustine, Florida tomorrow, I could take you to the pew and I could show you the claw marks where I would grip the back of that pew when the invitation was offered because I knew I needed to do something, but for whatever reason, I just couldn't. I didn't like worship that summer, but God is good. My wife kept up with me. I went to basic training and, and on Christmas Exodus after I uh, graduated basic training at Fort Benning, I became a Christian in December of 1999. Amen, right? God is good. And isn't that a good feeling? Do you remember that? Don't ever forget the Sunday after you were baptized, right? That first time taking the Lord's Supper, right? Man, that was such a good feeling. I love worship. I just love it. And can we all just be honest? The past year and a half or so has been tough, especially back when we were first dealing with this COVID stuff. Again, being transparent, I still don't know if, if we did the right thing. I mean, I, I, we responded in the best way that we knew how. We shut down for a little bit. But maybe this church is like our church. We handled it better than most churches in our area, I feel like. But in, in all honesty, we got some people that just haven't come back, and I don't know if they ever are. I, I mean, for them, the, the shutting down period just really was that catalyst that pushed them away. 
And that just tears me up inside. And I, I remember for me, you know, it was a Wednesday night and we were doing live streaming everything. I was talking to Corey about this. You know, Bear Valley jumped into this like we did. And you're learning this stuff on the fly. And it's me and one of our deacons, uh, Dennis. And, and we're sitting there on Wednesday night because there's nobody else in this auditorium that just a few months ago, you know, 200 people was crammed singing mansions over a hilltop. And I remember the experience. The doors just go, eh, and I don't know where Dennis went. Maybe I had to go to the bathroom or something, but he just up and left. And it's just me and the sound of my voice and this camera in front of me. Bleep, 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 bleep. And I remember thinking, this isn't what God intended the assembly to be. You know, me standing in front of this camera talking to it. I, I need a hug here. I, I need some fellowship. I, I need to hear that, that Mansions over the hilltop. And, and I just love worship so much. And I think that is one of the reasons this past year has been so tough for us, right? Because God designed the church that way. The assembly is, is not just something we do. It's a big part of what we do as a church. The going out into the world and doing missions and coming together as God's people to worship on Sunday has always and should always be a center part of the church of Jesus Christ, right? And so that's one of the reasons this past year has just been so tough. Because I love this. I love worship. I love it. You know, why don't people love the assembly? I think I understand, you know, why worldly people don't love worship. It's pretty simple, I think. It's because they don't love God. So if they don't love God, why would they love the assembly, right? Their, their affections are elsewhere. And so Sunday for that person is, you know, for sleeping in or doing some extra, you know, housework or, or going fishing or whatever. They're, they're committed to something else. Their allegiance to some is somewhere else, and so they don't love the assembly. I don't agree with that, obviously, but I think I understand it from that worldly perspective. I've had enough, look, I, I lived 10 years in Seattle. I dealt with enough people living up there that I understand the way a worldly people looks at the Sunday assembly. What I don't understand are Christians who don't love the assembly, okay? Right? I, I don't understand the mindset of someone that comes in just to check a box. You know what I mean? I've seen them at places that I've been at. You know, where, where they come in, they come in late and they sit down and it's like as soon as they take that cup, it's like you see them gathering their things and they're, they're heading out the back. Why? What? And I've just got to a point in my life where in my convictions, I just got to say something, you know. If I'm standing in the back, I'll just tell them, hey, where are you going? What you got going on? Oh, well, you know, work and, and, and I get it. People are busy. The world's busy nowadays. But can we not just worship and love the assembly as Christians? You know, I don't understand the, the checkbox. I don't understand the Christian that comes in and, and doesn't worship, doesn't participate. Uh, maybe you have some of these people in your congregation. We've got a few, you know. I, I'm sitting there in the invitation and I'm looking at them and they're... Corey's belting out, mansion over a hilltop, and they're just grumpy. It's like, why are you here, dude? I love this place. And I've just got to the point now where I'll just kind of stare at them. I'll just walk and just kind of look at them with big eyes. And you know what's funny about that is, you know, they'll be like this and then it's... 
and then their mouth. If it, if it was one of my kids, you know what I would do? I'd be like, I'm telling you right now. Because I love worship, and I love my kids love worship. And that's one of my favorite things about worship, you know, looking down that pew, and, and there's my seven favorite people on the planet, and they're worshiping God together. I mean, this is the way that it's supposed to be. But I don't understand a Christian who comes and checks the boxes and doesn't participate. And I don't understand the Christian that's always bringing an empty bucket. You know, they're coming into the assembly and their, their idea is, here, fill it up, song leader. You know, fill it up with a, with a hoorah speech, preacher. Give me some entertainment. Give me something. Now, listen. I'm not talking about the person who's broken and wounded. I'm not. I've been there. I, I've, the world has beat me up. I've, I've gone through loss, and I've been broken. And I've came into worship, and, and I needed that from a therapeutic sense. We've all been there, I think, at some point. But I'm talking about the person who continually brings an empty bucket and says, fill it up. Where when I read the Bible, we bring full buckets Hearts full of praise to God, and we dump it out on the altar of worship. That's one of my favorite things to do. When I preach, when I, when I sing, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, you know, by offering that praise, it just fills me up so much. There's a mutual filling up that goes on. You know, when we look at the Bible, when we look at the New Testament, the, the assembly is intended to be a blessing for the church. It's supposed to be a blessing. Think about some of these passages. They'll come to your mind, but think about Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. Do you realize, and in, in he's talking about in that context there, the assembly coming together in the assembly, and he says that you stimulate one another to love and good deeds in the assembly. Where else are you going to get that? Or how about what we've studied in 1 Corinthians, Right? Like Dan Owen was talking about downstairs, you know, do you realize that when you're in the assembly, we are fellowshipping with one another and God, and God is with us in the Lord's Supper and throughout that service in a special way? That's a special blessing. Or, or how about, you know, Ephesians chapter 5, don't get drunk with the wine, verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit. How are we going to do that, Paul? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Where are you going to get that other than in the assembly? When you're worshiping with your brethren. Or think about 1 Timothy chapter 2 where you've got godly men lifting holy hands. And they're bringing the prayers of the saints before the God who is present and who sees and knows and is with his church on that day. Man, the assembly for Christians is a blessing. Only sometimes it's not. Right? I, I wish I could tell you that everywhere I've ever been, that I, I, I've been to a church that was really putting their best foot forward, and, and folks were really trying to make the assembly this blessing that it is. But sometimes there's been too many of those people that I just mentioned a few moments ago, bringing empty buckets or checking boxes or just not participating for whatever reason. Like I've been to some worship assemblies that I saw more enthusiasm in a funeral parlor. I hate to say that. But I went in there and I came out thinking, man, that was sort of a drab. And, and the assembly shouldn't be that way. 
Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 tonight. We're going to get to our text in just a couple of minutes, but let me try to give you an illustration. Over here on this side, these windows always were curious to me in this building. I've got to be honest with you, right? You know, I, I think my son, was he was here, he loved to try to reach through and grab people as they walked by. And Brother Harry Denweiler was like, stop doing that, you know, and he didn't care. As soon as Harry walked away, ah, you know, he thought it was fun to reach through, try to reach through those windows and grab people. So but picture looking through one of these windows, except we're not looking into the Bear Valley Church of Christ in 2021. It's a window in which we get to look into a first century worship service, right? An early church assembly. Now listen, I think chapters 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 in 1 Corinthians hold the unique distinction of giving us perhaps the only unique perspective of what it was like for a first century worship service. You know, you think about the Old Testament, you go back to the book of Exodus, right? There's you know, a lot of chapters in the book of Exodus, which it describes for us what tabernacle worship was like. Or if you fast forward in Old Testament history, in the first temple period, in Solomon's temple, you know, books like Kings and Chronicles, there's a lot of chapters there which tell us how they worshipped. But when you come to the New Testament, you know, there's some passages, I've already quoted a few, Ephesians 5, 19, or you think about Acts chapter you know, 2 and verse 42, and Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, and the taking of the Lord's Supper there in that passage. You know, these are places that tell us what they did and excuse me, why they did it, but, you know, how they did it, in the sense of getting a full picture, 1 Corinthians 14 is kind of it, right? And for that reason, it holds a really unique distinction. And so let's picture looking through that window, and somehow we can look in on this worship assembly. What do you see? What do we see as we look in there? Well, I think one of the things that we would see is things that we all recognize, I think we would immediately recognize someone who was praying. We would immediately recognize they were taking the Lord's Supper, albeit they were doing it wrong, but we wouldn't recognize that's what they were doing. We would recognize many aspects of, of what they were doing. But a second thing that I think we, a unique perspective we get in looking through that window is we see something that is foreign to us, right? And let's just be honest about this, tongues and prophecy. There's not a man or woman or child living today that could tell us exactly what that was like. Right? I mean, you've probably heard somebody speak a foreign language just like I have. And I can try to visualize what it was like to have, you know, a, a miraculous you know, ability to speak in another language come upon you or to have this message come to you all of a sudden and to stand up and speak it. But I, I really don't know. And so that would be a really unique perspective to be able to look through that window. And 1 Corinthians 14 gives us a little bit of that where we can kind of see some of that, right? But the third thing that I want to emphasize is I, I think there are some things that we would see as we look into that window through these chapters that Paul has given us that even from our contemporary perspective, we would know are wrong. You know, we would see someone who is standing in the back and they feel left out and, and we would immediately recognize this person as, as being marginalized. 
Meanwhile, we look over and there's other people and they're sort of competing to, to speak the, the tongues the fastest. And we'd say, that's kind of chaotic and disorganized. And there's people speaking in tongues, but there's no one to interpret. And, and in the back, there's, there's an unbeliever and he's looking in at this assembly and he's going, Psh, why bother? This is, this is so confusing. I could go down to the pagan temple and get that. And so I think these chapters give us a unique window to look through into an early Christian worship service. I want us to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you would. I've been asked to address the passages, uh, the, the verses of 26 through 40. And, and I know what you're thinking. You've been preaching a while now. I'm looking at the timer, and I think I've been going 20 minutes already. And that's okay. You know, I remember Warren Wilcox one time, he wrote on the top of one of my sermons, every introduction you've ever done was too long, period. <laughs> I didn't want to disappoint him. <laughs> so there we go, Diddy, 20-minute introduction. You know, in all honesty, I, these verses are pretty simple. You know, and in all honesty, if you look at, look at verse 26 with me for just a second, it begins, what then, brethren? It's like me saying, here's the point. I'm summing things up. And so you get this assignment, and it's like, hey, we want you to speak for 40 minutes on Paul's conclusion, right? <laughs> well, how do you do that? I don't know. I don't know how to do that. So let's, we got to back up a little bit. we got to get a little bit. And, and I will say this, you know, the, the exegetical method in this school has, has taken hold well. Because I think every speaker has said something like, we got to put it in its context and back up to this. And, and we've done a really good job throughout this lectureship of covering our bases. And I think that's actually a very good thing. So I'm not going to get off, off topic and, and not do that. So let's back up a little bit, right? Because if you look back in, from the conclusion there of Paul's argument, really, uh, his addressing this question that begins back in chapter 12 and verse 1, you know, I think you've got to specifically look back to when Paul begins addressing the, the public assembly in the first place. I think that he had in mind when he started the book of Corinthians, when he starts talking about the divisions that existed among him, I think he knew already what he was going to say about the assembly. And that's all the way back in chapter 1. But I see him specifically start talking about the assembly in chapter 10 and verse 16. If you want to look over there, it says, It's not the cup of blessing which we... Uh, uh, we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. What's he talking about? Obviously, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. And when does the Lord's Supper take place? It takes place in the assembly, right? And so Paul transitions, I see, into a context in which he's addressing the assembly there in chapter 10, right? And so as you look through chapter 11 and the issue of, of women wearing head, head coverings and not wearing head coverings, I think that has specific relevance to to the assembly because, you know, it wouldn't matter if it was in private, right? Obviously, we're talking about a public setting, and then, of course, you go to the end of chapter 11, and he's talking about the Lord's Supper, and we're definitely talking about the assembly in that matter. And then we get to chapter 13. And in chapter 13, really, you get to the end of chapter, uh, chapter 12 there. He says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, Right? And he's ready to start addressing this, this question, you know, more fully that he begins in chapter 12. But he steps back from it and he says, but first let me show you a more excellent way. Now hold on to that. 
We're going to come back to this love and how that relates to the assembly in, in just a minute at the end in my application portion, right? But he gives this beautiful chapter on love. This beautiful description of the biblical concept of agape love. And then look at 14.1, right? Think about this. Don't, don't run past it. It's easy to jump past this where he says, pursue love. Let me ask a question real quick. What does that look like in the context of an assembly? I think we think through pursue love in the contents of personal character, how we treat one another. But what does that look like in the context of the assembly? Maybe another way to phrase that is, what does a loving assembly look like? What is the way of love as it pertains to our Sunday assembly, right? And then if you look at the beginning of chapter 14 here, you know, backing up to chapter 12, just real quick, I'm getting ahead of myself. Back up to chapter 12 where Paul begins specifically addressing the, the question concerning spiritual gifts, which is going to have specific reference to um, how they were being misused within the assembly. Paul first has to go through this process of differentiation, right? Uh, you know, to try to differentiate between why God gave these gifts to that church to begin with. Uh, Brother Dave Miller gave a really good talk yesterday. You might want to go back if you weren't uh, in that talk and listen to that one. It was really good about this, you know, the ceasing of spiritual gifts. But if you just run down through chapter 12 real quick, look at these verses, which I think tie into the conclusion of Paul's argument in chapter 14. Look at chapter 12 and verse 7, right? Notice what he says there, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, and then underline it, for the common good. For the common good. So these gifts that were given to the, the early church, to the church there in Corinth, God distributed them for the common good of everyone. Now that's going to have specific reference to the edification in chapter 14. But if you drop down just a little bit further and look at, uh, what is it, chapter 12. Look at verse 11 real quick. Chapter 12 and verse 11. He says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. And one of the big emphasis in chapter 14 is going to be, God is not a God of chaos. God is one who brings order out of chaos. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. He takes things from the disorderly and He brings it into this perfect order throughout chapter 1. He does that in our lives as well, right? That's what we got to be convincing people of and showing people. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad your life is, God is a God that can take chaos and do wonderful things with it. He's a God who can take even the most horrible situations and do something with it. He's a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. And so he's not just distributing these gifts all willy-nilly, you know. It's not like the apostles with their, you know, laying on of the hands were divine Holy Spirit Pez dispensers, you know, you know, just shooting out spiritual gifts just in a chaotic fashion. If God's Holy Spirit gave them the gifts, then he did it for the common good. He did it for the purpose of building up everyone. And then chapter 12, again, just one more time, chapter 12 and verse 27, I want to focus on this one. I love what he says before that, you know, the whole idea of, of the weaker members being bestowed uh, honor 
by the stronger members. Hey, remember what I said? What does it mean to have a loving assembly? You know, what does it mean to bestow honor upon the weaker members in the assembly? Think about that. I want you to think about that. Are the weaker members of your body bestowed honor? Or do they feel marginalized? I remember there was a, a, a church that I worked with, and this lady worked at a homeless um, shelter. And, and they would come, <laughs> these people would come to the church, and they were a mess. And, and they'd sat in the back corner of the church building, and, and the church members, and I knew something was not right. They just referred to them as roses people. You know, we didn't baptize a lot of those people. You know, what are, what are we doing for those weaker members? I'm spending too much time here. Go over to chapter 14. Chapter 14. Because as we look at Paul as he begins to address the misuse of gifts within the assembly there, we see that the way of love, this pursuing love as it pertains to the assembly, centers around this word edification. Look at verse 26 of chapter 14. 14 verse 26. He says, what then is the outcome, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Then here's the point, underline it. Let all things be done for edification. And if my count is correct, that particular word that's translated edification there by the New American Standard, this is the sixth occurrence of that word since it began all the way back in chapter 14 in verse 2, where he says, For one speaks in a tongue and does not speak uh, to men but to God, for one, no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Verse 3, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification. And he goes down through this, and he talks about these, the, the proper use of these gifts for the common good builds up. That, that particular Greek word there that's translated edification, it carries with it the idea of building up the body. And, and that's why these particular gifts were, were distributed. And, and quite frankly, as we looked through that window and saw those things that, that just weren't right in that first uh, that, that first. Corinthian church there, or that Corinthian church there, it was childish. Look at 14 and verse 20 real quick. This is a passage that Brother Sage was covering there. He says, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in, your e in, uh, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Now connect that back to chapter 13 and verse 11. Right? This is the, the way of love, right? When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child and reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Quite frankly, what Paul is saying, I think, to the Corinthians is your assemblies are kind of childish. It, it needs to be mature. And, and the mature way is the way of love. And the way of love is one that seeks to, to edify, to build up the body of Christ, to to not marginalize people, not to cause confusion, not to cause the unbelievers to go away disenchanted with what it was that they saw. And that brings me, finally, to these passages of Scripture I've asked to be covered. 14, 26 through 40. And I think it's really simple. 
In conclusion, Paul's going to say, after everything that he's already said about this particular assembly, he says there again, all of you are coming, and God has given these gifts to everyone, and you're all coming together as God's people to worship on the Lord's day. Therefore, all of you, when you come together, bring your full buckets and pull them out, pour them out on the altar of worship, and let all things be done for the building up of the body. And then he's going to take three particular issues that were being neglected, I guess is the word you would use, that was causing this division, that was causing for the body to be torn down and not built up. Look at verses 27 and 28. He says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at the most, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Pretty simple, right? He says... Conduct your service in an orderly way so that tongues is something that builds up the body and edifies those who are there, be they believer or unbeliever. Drop down to the next couple of verses, 29 through 33, he's going to talk about prophecy. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can... All prophesy by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So again, when it comes to your use of prophecy within the assembly, do it in an orderly manner and in a way that builds up the body of Christ, that edifies the people that are there. And then he drops down to verses 34 and 35, which in my opinion get undue attention because if you've just been listening to what Paul is doing, it just really answers itself. He's already began talking about women within the assembly all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He's already set the tone right there, right? And so here he's going to address the issue of male spiritual leadership, right? And so he says in verses 34 and 35, the women are to keep silent. Now that's the same word that he's already used referring to a prophet who is speaking, and then another one gets a revelation. That first one is to keep silent. Or the one who is able to speak in a tongue, but there's no interpreter, he's supposed to keep silent. And then he simply sets forth the principle of male spiritual leadership, and he says, within the churches, the women are to keep silent within the assembly, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. And Paul never, when he speaks about male spiritual leadership, roots it in the context of culture. If you're listening to what Paul is doing, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and in the context there, what does he point back to? He points back to Genesis and the creation directives. Or if you go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he's addressing women within the assembly, he's pointing back to the creation directives. He roots it not in culture, he roots it in the way that God created the world when Paul speaks of those things. I know we've got some people that want to jump into this, this verse right here, 34 and 35, and rip it out of context and make it say something else. I just don't think it's all that complicated. If you're just listening to what Paul is saying there, he's simply saying, do these things in a way that is orderly and glorifies God and edifies and builds up the church. And then verses 39 and 40 is his final conclusion. He says this. I'm sorry, verse 36. 40. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. 
He just said something similar to this in verse 33 where he said, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. What's he saying here? Here's what I think he's saying here. It's real simple. What I'm telling you is what all the churches everywhere are being told. This is what God expects in the assembly, so just do it. Don't be childish in your thinking. Don't be selfish, and that goes back to the whole issue of 1 Corinthians, don't be selfish. The worship assembly is not about you or your preferences. It's about God and, and his people worshiping him together and building up one another. Right? That's why we love it. Because we're there with God and we're there with one another. And it's a special time for us as Christians. And so Paul concludes... Verse 39, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking of tongues. That phrase, desire earnestly, it connects right back to chapter 14 and verse 1, which connects right back to chapter 12 and verse 31, showing this continuation of Paul speaking throughout this text. So now let me make some application. I've got three minutes. We could do this, okay? Number one. As I look at the, at the churches of Christ, our problem is, is not having chaotic worship services. I don't think I've ever been to a Church of Christ worship service that looks like, you know, that YouTube video I saw of the Pentecostal service where, you know, the guy got up and he did a little jig on the pulpit and he turned around and he jumped into the baptistry. And he got, I've never seen that. Our, our services tend to be very orderly. But can we be honest here? Sometimes we can just be too rigid. Right? Thank you, Louie. <laughs> we can be too rigid. Let me give you an example real quick here, okay? <laughs> we were appointing some new deacons, right? And, and I'm emceeing this particular event at the end of the worship services. I, I ask uh, these men and they come forward. And, and then I simply say this. I'd like for our elders to come forward and, and lay their hands on the deacons and let's have a prayer. I didn't know it at the time, but there was a collective freak out when I said that. It was like, oh no, you know, they're going for, they're laying their hands on them. They're praying. And it ended up being, it was just different. And so I had to explain to them, hey, let's go to Acts chapter 6. Hey, let's look at when they were laying hands on those men. That was the early church's way of saying, hey, these guys are in charge. That's all I was doing. I mean, we can be too rigid. When we get upset when the preacher preaches for 27 minutes instead of 25 minutes, or when the song leader decides to lead all of the songs, and when we've been 15 minutes late to the Golden Corral, and we've got to wait 15 minutes for our table, we're too rigid. Brethren, come on, this is, this is worship. This is the highlight of my week. Don't be so rigid. All right, number two. What can we do... To make our assemblies a place where every person is valued and all contribute. I think that's something to aim for, right? I'm very proud of our church. We just came up with a mission statement of who we want to be. And, and, and this is what it is. To be a Christ-centered family where every person is valued. That's our mission, our, our vision statement. And I'll be honest with you, one of the things we got to work on is our assembly has to be a place where when people come in, they feel valued. They cannot feel marginalized. They cannot feel pushed to the side. They've got to see a Christ-centered family who values them. 
lastly, going back to the way of love. If a visitor comes into my assembly, I think it's great when they say, you know, I really appreciated the singing in that church. It was, it was just upbeat and it was enthusiastic. I think it's great, you know. And they say, oh, your preacher, he's so handsome and he did such a good job. But really, you know what I would love for somebody to say? I'd love for every visitor that comes into my church to say, that was the most friendly and loving group of people that I've ever been around. What can we do? What can we do to make our assemblies look like that way of love, which is the far better way? My time is up. I thank you for your attention tonight.